0: This is Talk Is Sheep, a podcast by the Wild Sheep Society of British Columbia. Come along as we take conversations that matter to you into the High Alpine.
1: Mr. Peter Guccia, Director of Wild Sheep BC and Membership Chair.
0: How's it going, brother? It's going good, Kyle. Great to uh, see your beautiful face again this morning.
1: (laughs) Yeah, uh, this is a fun one to catch up on. I know that you go way back with Donny. Uh, I've never had the pleasure and uh, didn't really know what to expect. I try and prep for these podcasts, but with Donnie, I didn't need to prep. I just let him talk. He's just the guy's a, a legend, and, and he does such a great job of communicating what he does and what we a lot of the things I feel as a hunter that I can't articulate. He does a great job of it
0: yeah you bet uh he's he's you know he can definitely speak far more eloquently than than i can myself and and even a little bit better than you i might you know brave enough to say that right now so hey that's not uh, (laughs) yeah no he's a great representative for the hunting community and conservation community i think and um and i think he got a lot of good points across here today and it was a great pleasure to talk to him again
1: yeah absolutely um and you got to be part of that fraser river capture that first year that was the big year it was the big one um and we haven't really had that quite uh impact in that presence since but uh yeah very cool that you were part of that and got to see that and experience it and uh, I'm, i have to admit i'm pretty envious of of your experience there
0: oh i know it was uh it truly was a, a a something i'm very grateful for uh to to be a part of that capture work it's not something that everybody gets to to go be a part of and it's certainly something that it was a few years ago now and it's it's led me to continue down the path that i'm on right now which is to keep trying to get deeper and deeper into it and uh try to do more and more and um, when you've got someone like donnie who he was there as it gets into he was there hunting you know he was on a paid hunt as a a, an outfitted hunt and he kind of stopped his hunt to go and just be a part of conservation for a few days Um, that's pretty impactful i think and if more of us did that the world probably be a little bit of a better place so yeah,
1: well said. It's interesting too with Donnie. He talks about why people get involved with projects and why they support conservation. So for our listeners, pay attention to that because uh, I've never heard that perspective, and it makes a lot of sense. You know, it's talks about our you know our very existence as hunter gatherers and wanting to be out on the landscape and being part of conservation. You're doing that, so it's kind of our. It's innate for us that are hunter gatherers to be doing that stuff. It's a really cool perspective. I've never heard that before. And as Donnie's so good at, um, you know, about telling these stories, he does a great job there too. So.
0: Yeah, you bet, Kyle. Um, I guess we should probably talk about as well uh, things that we've got coming up here in the next month, two months, maybe even the weekend that we release this, or <laughs> all kinds of things happening. There. Yeah, we
1: got a lineup. So northern fundraiser this coming weekend. Um, We got a great lineup. So the cool thing is on Friday night, uh, Frontiersman Gear is going to be there. Tanner and his crew are releasing their film. It's a caribou conservation film called Through Our Eyes. Uh, I got a sneak peek at that one uh, as uh, the society uh, was fortunate enough to be asked to be part of it. We've uh, given some financial support to that um, film, and it's, it's an amazing film. So those that haven't seen it and you haven't seen it because it's not released yet you got to see it so we're going to you're going to see it at the northern on the friday night we're going to have it at our Kamloops convention on the friday night and then we'll have it at a number of our events we'll have some pub nights and stuff like that throughout the year so um great film by tanner and the crew um, he's got a really really uh, strong team behind him to put this together and uh, just a great job there so then Fast forward to March, we got our Camloops convention, March 10th and 11th, uh, that's gonna be a good one. We're working really hard as a board on that, Pete, and I know you've been really involved in it. Uh, so Tom Foss is a keynote, that's great. Our our um, f- uh, life member breakfast is gonna be bigger and better than ever before. We've got a ton of really cool things there. We're giving away a, a one of those Wild Sheep Foundation thin horn edition rifles, it's a Weatherby rifle. Um, it's got a carbon barrel. Um, just a, a beautiful setup it's kind of on a mark 5 chassis and we're giving that away to one lucky life member so if you're a life member you're automatically entered in the draw for that and if you're at the dinner or breakfast you get more chances to win if you're upgrading to monarch even more chances to win so somebody's going to be really happy with that kit
0: yeah you bet it's so cool that we're we're able to start doing these types of things now where we can give back to membership i know we've been talking about it on the board for a number of years already and uh always trying to strike that balance of uh the money that we're getting in you know we want to put that into conservation but um and we do a a pretty darn good job of that i think and uh it's also it's really nice that we can give something back to our membership because it's it's the guys and gals that make a make this group up that's why we're we are where we are so super exciting and then also on membership i will throw out uh tentative date or it's kind of in the in ink at this point actually uh april 1st is going to be the special Spencer bridge sheep count this year um we don't have a whole lot organized but if you're interested in being a part of it reach out to me uh, or greg Rensmag as well Uh, i'm sure he'll i may be volunteering him too early but reach out to him anyway as well (laughs) and he can give me shit for it (laughs)
1: awesome uh yeah and then we got trade shows all across BC. So we're going to be there's a Victoria trade show that we'll be at. We'll publish all these dates, but come out and check us out, see what we're doing, chat to us about wild sheep. We always do some cool giveaways, and uh, uh, if we can, we'll maybe do some podcasts at some of these. Uh, we've got the Fort Saint John trade show in April. Uh, there's two in the Lower Mainland, so we got the um, what? What are they? Is it there's one in Chilliwack, one in the Abbey?
0: I believe that's correct. Yeah, uh, and then I know there's also one in Kelowna, mid April, sometime. Right. So, a bunch of trade
1: shows going on. We'll be out there and uh, talking about our conservation work, uh, selling memberships, doing giveaways, and uh, of course, there's tons of raffle tickets. We've got a really, actually, I can I can throw this out there now. Uh, we've got an exciting raffle that we're going to launch. So, Precision Optics has backed us up on this, and a bunch of our sponsors have come to the tables, and we're giving away over $50,000 in rifles um, through donations, through our raffle program. It's our Wild Sheep Super Rifle Raffle, WSSRR. And um, uh, we did something similar a few years ago with uh, Precision Optics, and we gave away uh, a pretty cool setup, but this is next level. So the Premier Rifle in that one is going to be a gunworks, but we have a couple of Fierce in there. We've got uh, Weatherby um, and more. So we'll uh, we'll give you the details in due course, but uh, we can officially talk about that because we've gotten our – Our license issued now and we'll be good to go. That'll launch in mid-March. So pretty exciting uh, program there.
0: Incredible support from Omer as usual, I see.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Omer is phenomenal and our conservation partners just continue to step up and give, give, give. And we're super grateful for the support that they give us, which allows us to bring it to you guys, which through your support, we put $1.18 million over the last five years into wild sheep projects in British Columbia. So hats off to everyone. It's, it takes all these pieces of these moving puzzles to put this together and uh, couldn't do it without the donors, couldn't do it without the support of our membership. and, And thank you for everyone for the support there. So my friend, with that, it's episode 112 with none other than the great Donnie Vincent. Enjoy.
0: Across Canada and throughout the world, If you come across a
2: campfire in the woods, on a mountaintop, or next to a river, you'll find warm company and friendly people gathered around. Regardless of your lifestyle or place you call home, we invite
0: you to learn more about what it means to be a hunter in the modern era. If you love the outdoors, care about where your food comes from, and are concerned for the future of wildlife and the environments
2: that they need to survive, pull up a seat. We have a story to tell. Welcome to our campfire.
1: The man, the legend, Donnie Vincent. We've got you on the podcast, so welcome, man. Thanks for stopping and talking sheep.
2: Yeah, man. I'm sorry it took a, it's taken a couple of rounds here to get on, but uh, I've been trying to get on the East Coast to hunt some eiders last week and uh, had a couple of canceled flights, and I have a couple of days lined up. I leave tomorrow now again, uh, and I just talked to the guy I'm going to hunt with, and he said, man, weather's looking tough, so it's just the way january in the atlantic ocean and and eiders go but i appreciate your sidestepping schedule and juggling things to get me on i appreciate the offer for sure
1: oh we're really stoked to have you on and uh you know we were trying to get something in the fall and of course we know that that's a train wreck but uh you know as we get into the winter we think oh yeah it's good but you were just up in uh was it kodiak or adak or something you were up there
2: yep on ADAC, I drew an emperor goose okay. permit. Luckily, thankfully, I drew that permit. And um, Do you guys know about the emperor permits, by chance?
1: Not enough. No. Tell us about it.
2: Okay, so the emperor goose is essentially the long and short of it. There's some ins and outs of this, but essentially uh, season on the emperor goose. The emperor goose kind of looks like a baldy blue goose, if you will. Very, very pretty goose, but they have a white face. They have a bubblegum pink and baby blue bill, it almost looks cartoonish. Um, they have a white face, and the back of their necks is white. The, their throat is jet black, and then it goes into kind of a steel steel gray body, where, where all their feathers are outlined lightly. It's a, maybe the prettiest goose. Obviously, that's up for distinction. Uh, even Canada's have you know their right, but um, the season closed around the mid 1980s 1983 1984 because the population took a major dip from um, over hunting and then more importantly, over egg harvesting uh, on their, on their breeding grounds and on their nesting grounds. And so they just opened up a new season for them four years ago, I believe where they give out 20 tags a year. Residents of Alaska can shoot one a year um, and about a hundred uh, Alaska residents shoot one a year. And then for non-residents, they give out 20 tags and you're allowed to shoot one Preferably a male a year. And so I drew that tag, which is, it, it's, for me, I'm a waterfaller. It's sick. It's awesome. And Adak is such a wild place.
1: So is that your first time hunting uh, on on the island there, or is it uh, you've been up there before, that part of the world?
2: One other time, um, we did a project up there for Benelli, uh, and we did a film called Winds of Adak, titled Winds of Adak, and we uh, hunted caribou. Uh, some sea ducks, and then we hunted a little bit of ptarmigan up there. Benelli was releasing three firearms, the Lupo uh, bolt-action rifle in 30-odd-6, a, uh, their A28 AU over-under. They have an over-under. That was in 12-gauge. They were uh, uh, releasing it in 20-gauge, excuse me, and then they had a new Super Black Eagle 3. So uh, they basically came to me and, and my group here at Sick Man and said, we want to release these three guns. We're tired of doing it commercially we're tired of doing kind of infomercials we're tired of just buying ad space and magazines of course they do that stuff as well they said we want to tell a story around these three guns we don't want them to be the um highlight of the film we want the wildlife and the wild place to be the highlight of the film we just want the guns to be in the film and so we went to adac for i think 14 or 17 days and and, uh, and filmed a grand adventure to highlight their three new weapon platforms.
0: I recall in that one, Donnie, there was a, I think it was caribou that was stranded on the beach that you guys had to end up rescuing in some capacity. It's been a couple of years since I watched it now, but... Um, yeah, Super um, neat that, that you just said there, the, sorry, just the concept that Benelli was looking at getting into a film where, you know, it's they're not trying to just sell their guns in that traditional space, but you go out and do a, a project like this and you something like that happens. It's just, I find it always fascinating that those things seem to occur in those places and times.
2: Yeah, it was, it was, um, it was incredible. I'll never forget when we came back from that trip. It was also a very dangerous day. Um, and I'll tell you a little bit more about that story right now. <clears throat> I don't know how uh, polite it is to tell or how, um, how, uh, it's my place to tell this story, but I'll tell it just because of what we're talking about. But, um, when we went over, uh, when we went around the island to to kill that caribou or to go hunt those caribou, uh, we found that bull. I mean, there's one spot on the beach where we could access because otherwise the swell was too violent, and we had to go in there. and And uh, it was a really dangerous day getting there. the The seas were just really, really steep and really unorganized. We were facing twenty foot waves the whole way there and the whole way home in the dark, and and uh, we had an engine go down, and it was just it was all hands on deck. I'm a guy that gets, um, unfortunately I get seasick sometimes. I've never, I've only actually had MSS once on a boat in Alaska in really big seas. But, uh, I, I was so aware of my surroundings and so hyper focused on staying in the boat and holding on and making sure everyone else is staying in the boat that it didn't even occur to me to be seasick on that day and plus the waves were so disorganized i didn't know which end was up but we go to shore in that one spot and lo and behold that bull i think he was rubbing on that rope ball you know for the rut and basically tangled himself up and he had a rope around his neck and it was you know a tense situation per second i wanted to even though i'm there to hunt and ultimately kill a bull um i wanted to cut him free but in that location this year um some of the guys actually found a life raft in that exact location and found a uh, found a, a sailor who had not made it. They found his skeletal remains not far from that life raft, um, and that was it was really close to where that caribou was.
1: That's uh, that's pretty intense, eh? That um, is really poignant when you're out there. And you know, as hunters on the landscape, you know, we you know we're, we're always out there. But it's uh, not everybody comes back, right? It's uh, and when you see something like that, it's a it's definitely a reminder.
2: Yeah, the seas there, I've never seen anything like it. Uh, and the guys where I were with, uh, Corey Hunter and Scott, uh, two guys that uh, run the outfitting business there, and they, they do a lot of stuff with scientists. Hunting is a very, very small uh, portion of their business. They do much more with uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife and with geological surveying, and, and uh, they do a fair bit with bird watching, things like that in the spring. But, yeah, the it's just it's such big water. You have... There's a trench there that basically goes from, I don't know what it is, 10 or 20,000 feet deep up to 500 feet deep. And then you have these extreme winds from the Bering Sea and the Pacific Ocean that are basically meeting in this little thin little strip. And, uh, and then you add in the current, the wind, and the shelf, and it's a mess. I didn't know which end was up that day. Literally one moment, we'd be skidding down a wave on our side and the next moment, we'd be getting plowed into the face of another wave to where we're watching the whole front of our boat is under the water. And then we ride that wave to the top only to fall 15 or 20 feet. I mean, literally just watch this boat fall and slam into the next wave. And then we do some variation of that all over again for hours on end. And yeah, it's just hyper-aware,
1: hyper aware, hyper, hyper Sounds like a great time. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Excellent character, what was fun. the I outfitter?
1: Were this. they? <laughs> what, what was the outfitter doing? Were they or the the boat captain? Were they freaking out or were they pretty chill about it? That was just uh, operations normal or were they pretty freaked out? That's a that's my telltale sign. When they're nervous, I'm nervous.
2: Um, they were they were definitely not freaked out. Although we had two we have two two fifties on the boat and we lost one. Um, a sensor had burned out. The engine was fine, but the sensor that tells you if water is in the gas was misreading itself. So it kept telling us that there was water in the fuel. So the engine kept shutting down because it was warning itself. So it wouldn't blow up. Well, the sensor burned itself out. So we did all of this with one engine. And even though multiple times I looked in the cab, because I wanted to stay out of the boat, Corey, He really encouraged us to be in the cab in case we were to capsize so that everyone would stay in and hopefully the boat would right itself. But just my, I don't know if it's my personality or who I am or what I wanted, but uh, myself and Kyle Nicolette, our director, um, we stayed outside and just kind of held on to these posts and, you know, just wrote it out. But, you know, Corey was definitely hyper-focused on the situation. I could see how his body movements, there was no guff whatsoever, he was definitely totally focused. but you know multiple times I watched him basically get launched out of his captain's chair and he'd end up on the other side of the boat and then he's having to crawl literally vertically crawl, like pull on chairs and things to get back to the wheel, which is just literally spinning around as we're getting bounced around and he gets back to the wheel and you know we're starting to address the next wave because we get caught in the wrong scenario, which we did a few times, not to his fault, but to the disorganization of the waves, right? Because we're not just going like this. The waves are coming from every different direction. The way I would describe it is if you were to go to your bathtub and instead of taking, you know, if you were to take your kid's boat and bring it all to one side of your bathtub and just kind of, you know, pulse the boat, you'd see these waves methodically go to the bathtub and then come back. But if you go to the center of that, and just start making waves to all four corners. When they come back and they're all sloshing and disorganized, that's what we were in. Yeah,
1: you can see why those Alaska King, uh, those Alaska fishermen end up uh, going capsizing all the time, and ended up. It's. I think that's. what well, they say that's one of the most dangerous jobs in the world out there.
2: Yes, and I believe that gentleman in the um, life raft that lost his life, unfortunately. I believe. I believe he's a. I believe that that raft is from a fisherman.
1: Yeah. Yeah, those guys are in their keep. Um, so back to uh, the emperor. Did you did you consume the thing? Was it was it worth the trip or what's, <laughs> what? Because uh, uh, I think protein by ounce might be a little bit high on that one bird. I'm thinking <laughs> uh, cost wise.
2: Yeah, he's is, he's is definitely not getting eaten. I I eat everything I kill, but that guy is definitely uh, getting mounted before anything else. And um, I probably still could eat him. He's in the freezer. And, uh, but yeah, I, he's, he's just one that I went and I wanted to experience it. And, you know, honestly seeing them was, was good enough for me, but I wanted to do it. I'm not patting myself on the back, but a lot of guys go there and they'll, you know, they get one tag, especially if they're a non-resident. And so they'll go there and land, let the geese land and they'll literally take binoculars and look over the flock and pick out a big male, which I think is a really good thing. Wait for that male to kind of isolate himself, and then basically like turkey shoot him, like just head shoot him, knock him down, go get him. So everything, you know, busting him up with a 12 gauge and everything. But the way I wanted to do it was classic. I wanted to shoot him on the wing, coming into decoys or or pass shooting. I would shoot a pass shooting situation. I had a couple of pass shooting situations, and I flat out chickened out. I had hundreds of geese flying right over my head, but I couldn't. Hell, you know, when you're shooting honkers or mallards or pintails or snow geese, you're just picking out legal birds and you get to shoot two or three or seven or eight or ten, whatever it is, and you're just there's one and there's one. and But with but I only get one, and if I cripple another, well, now I've still two, and a I've broken the law and affected the population. I really don't want to kill a female, but we did set it up, we did uh three different steps but we did set it up where they were coming into decoys and it was spectacular the 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 ocean was absolutely pristine we were on a rock beach where all the rocks are just polished so smooth and then the water there it's caribbean green i wrote about it in um, instagram that it's as though i was in a, a shipwrecked situation because you know you see the these caribbean islands where somebody is shipwrecked or stranded and the water is because humans aren't there that's what it's like there when, when when we're going in on the zodiac and you're looking down you can see the bottom in 50 60 feet of water you see the bottom plain of day and, and the mountains are all snow-capped and the volcanoes are snow-capped and there's big puffy clouds and the sun as you well know the sun stays really low this time of year so the clouds are pinks and oranges in the morning and it was snowing a little bit and these geese came off and we had um, we had i think uh eight hand carves decoys, and then we had eight or so plastic decoys, and they just turned and came right in, and one of the birds isolated himself just naturally as how he was coming in, and I wanted to wing shoot him, and it looked like a fancy bird, it looked like a big bird, and so I shot him, and it ended up being a perfect male specimen, and at the shot, he dropped, no other birds were hit, He's totally isolated about four or five feet away from the other flock. it was stunning, it was, it was a stunning morning really dangerous to hunt there and to be with Corey and just to have that kind of confidence and and uh, it's an amazing place
1: awesome love hearing that passion uh, Donnie and so I want to talk a little bit about you know the your storytelling and um, very unique like it as we all know you come to know from you but how important when you're selecting hunts and and where you're going um, is that conservation piece And the messaging how, how important is that Or how many of it is Like a bucket list hunt Like I, no I just want to go And hunt this um, Or is it always around The business and the storytelling Let, Let's jump into that A little bit for us
2: um, I That's an interesting question um, It's probably most Always around The storytelling and not in the sense of Business wise It's in the sense of Almost, if you think about um, looking at a painting, that's how I kind of see the world, and, and that's how I want to see the world. I've had many of other hunters, you know, where I've I've let a deer walk, or I've let an elk walk, or a sheep walk, and then I'll come back to you know. Cause usually, when you're hunting these bigger animals, there's a couple of people there, you know, and I'd come back and be like, "That was awesome," you know, and I'll have a guide or a buddy or you know, a mentor possibly say, hey, how come you didn't shoot? And I'd be like, oh, I just, you know, I just wasn't right. And, and they'll say, man, you've read too many books or you've watched too many movies. Like, But that's how I want it to go. Like, I passed the Big Bull Moose this year in Alaska. And um, I'll tell the story in a moment. But essentially, I grew up reading Jack O'Connor. And I grew up, this, I have this one big book here at the Cabin. The Game Animals of North American, on every page covers the natural history of a different species. And when you begin that chapter, he has a painting. And I love the paintings because it shows the animals in the natural habitat. Not in all of them, but in a lot of them, if you look, really tiny like up on a cliff, or on the other side of a valley, you'll see, excuse me, the artist has hunters painted in there. And so I just love that, like the doll sheep. I fell in love with doll sheep when I was a kid. The doll sheep. It's funny, because doll sheep, doll sheep, doll sheep. Not bighorn sheep, although they're amazing. And, and it's funny, because Jack called them the greatest big game animal. Not bighorn sheep. Uh, not desert bighorn sheep. Not even stone sheep, which are... And I got to hunt stones, it's unbelievable. But doll sheep are my favorite. If you said, even though it, you know... $300,000 to hunt a bighorn $100,000 to hunt a desert fifty dollars to hunt a stone and twenty-five dollars to hunt a doll if you said you only had to hunt one species the rest of your life it's absolutely the doll just where they live how they behave and um, which is funny I find that interesting now because I go back to that book and the first animal in that book is the doll sheep so I just wonder if I was kind of imprinted by that And uh, in that painting you can see all this, um, deeply gray shale and these flipped out rocks and you see two Uh, white rams and their, you know, uh, their golden eyes and their golden horns. You see them twisted up there. And, and then way up on the cliff, you see two guys, you know, dressed handsomely as though O'Connor would be, you know, wearing slacks and a button-up shirt, you know, and a fedora. They, those, you know, we used to dress like gentlemen when we hunted. We didn't dress for survival, although there's a lot of wool. We dressed to look handsome for both to be present in the game, I think, and also in the photos. But I see these things and that's what I want to experience. You know, I'll give you two for instance. I did a moose hunt a few years ago. I'll, I'll leave names out of this, but I, I did a moose hunt a few years ago, and the guy that I moose hunted with, he said, "Hey, you flying on this day? I've already got your bull selected, if you will. It wasn't this? It wasn't this. Gross. I'm I'm shortcutting this for our conversation. But he said, I already know where I'm putting you." There's lots of moose there. There's a big, handsome bull there. You know, I'll drop you off tomorrow in a day or so. You'll kill him. It's going to be beautiful. I said, Hey, I don't, I don't want to do that. Um, I, I want to go into an area where there isn't people and, and I, I would love to do a float. I was up in the Arctic and I was like, I said, I would love to do a float as it, as it turns out, um, my idea would have almost worked perfectly. Um, but I zigged and the moose zagged. And actually we had a miserable, miserably wet camp at this one spot. We were sleeping in a teepee and just with where we had to camp, there's four to six inches of water in the teepee at all times. Cause it was a really wet part of tundra. So as we spent more time there, you guys know what I'm talking about. I mean, I might as well had a jet ski, but we we're just, you know, deeper and deeper and deeper. And and so eventually after like day six, we're like, let's pull out, let's go to another camp. Well, that day we pulled out and we weren't a mile below camp. And the gentleman who we were hunting with flew over in his cub to bring supplies to another camp. And he mess- he he messaged us and asked us how everything was going. And we said, it's great. You know, so we moved camps and he's like, great. And then we got back to camp after the hunt. He said, Hey, I want to show you something that's going to make you sick to your stomach. But there is." you know, we have been calling in that camp and a real hammer of a bull had shown up in our camp when we were less than a mile down, down the river, but that's hunting. And, and then, um, I also found this huge black bear there and it was picture perfect. This bear was massive and it was snowing and all of his fur was icy and frosty and he was eating blueberries. You guys know how they eat using their teeth as rakes, right? And they're just rigged leaves and stems and berries. And you could just tell he was getting very near to Denning, snowing where we were. It was snowing up top, and we were up top when we found this bear, and he was a hulking boar, and he's just eating these blueberries. And I was doing a project, actually, so it was business. I was doing a project for an ammunition company. and about all these projects that I do, these ammunition companies or gun companies come to me, and they say, "We we just do you. We don't want to control it. Just go do something beautiful, and we just want to be a part of it. But I, And I regret not shooting this bear because I think the company regretted me not shooting this bear. But on the other hand, I, I just made a decision. I was sitting there 100 yards away. He was broadside to me, eating berries, He had no idea we were there. <clears throat> and I could have just popped him. But I just thought, he's so close to Denning. He's a monster. He's old. If I don't shoot him, he's going to make it another year. And I just thought, and then I also thought selfishly, if I shoot him, maybe I bump a moose out of this valley. But we all know truly how quiet a rifle is out there, right? We think when we shoot the rifle, it scares everything away for the next mile. Truthfully, if it's, if an animal is not 200 yards away, they don't even pay attention to it because there's so many loud rock noises out there. And so anyway, long story short, I passed the bear, misstepped on the moose, left the hunt without being successful although i had a fantastic time um and then fast forward to this year i did a solo hunt in alaska had a beautiful hunt uh flew in with jeremy davis of canoe bay outfitters absolutely ridiculously talented i almost said young man even though he's older than me uh he just is a very young spirited man and and his wonderful wife michelle and their kids uh flew me in and i hunted 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 and and on the last day I called in this bull and I accidentally, we laugh about it now with my crew, but we accidentally bull hunted him. I had this high-powered rifle, same ammunition company, calling this bull out. I misguessed his size, but instead of just shooting him at 150 yards in a wide open, I went down in the alders and stalked him and we got to 15 yards. But at 15 yards, I couldn't see him. I could just hear him going, whoa. He's sitting there, you know, you know how they do. Yeah. He tickle, you know, and I'm sitting there with my rifle. And then I thought to myself, well, this is so stupid. Even if he walks out on camera, it's going to look like I shot a fuzzy piece of plywood. He's going to fill the whole. He's absolutely massive. And then so I hike back up my glassing knob, and there he walks out at 300 yards, and he's bigger than life. Not only is he legal, he's a hammer, and I let him just walk away because. I could have killed him, but the jig was up, right? It wasn't him coming in. It wasn't the painting. And so that's kind of how I decide. I want to go to places where I'm going to see whitetails being whitetails. I want to go hunt Canadian moose where they're going to be Canadian moose. I don't want to hunt. For instance, I had a super tag a few years ago in, in Nevada and I hunted elk in the Shell Creek range of Nevada. It was very expensive elk tag. I didn't buy it. A company that I was working for bought it and they wanted me to go and film there. And I hated it. I hated it. There were hunters, even though there's only a few tags in this area, just a couple of tags, but every, every hunter that had a tag had 30 guys working for him. I felt like I was the only one there that was by myself and I hated it. And I kind of wrote about that. And I got a bunch of nasty messages from elk hunters. Elk hunters are a proud group. They really love chasing elk, and, and uh, understandably, but I wanted to get away from the people. I wanted to see elk being elk. I wanted to see that natural movement. You know, I didn't want to see side-by-sides and spotting scopes everywhere, and Kuyu and Sitka. Like, it literally looked like an ultralight hunting catalog had really puked across this mountainside. I saw more Kuyu and Sitka than I saw, you know, brush. And, um, it was, it was intense and I didn't like it at all. So when I'm choosing where I want to go, that that's what makes me kind of decide is lack of people kind of scary factor and big factor in the animals acting and behaving of their natural
1: biology. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it does. And, you know, and that's the thing is there's a lot to be learned from that, you know, and you know, what, what is our motivation for hunting? And we all have different drivers, right? Like uh, we're not all the same, you know, there's common themes and, uh, and I guess that's the one thing that really stands out with you is your, your storytelling. It's so unique in that perspective. And, um, even, you know, I've, I'm a lifelong hunter and, you know, I have different motivations at different times, but, uh, you know, it always makes me self-reflect when I, when I, your content, I'm always thinking, oh yeah, no, why do I do this? And cause lots of times I don't, you know, you know, it's just natural. You just go out and do what you do and you don't even think about it. So that's one of the cool things I like about your platform and your messaging is I, lots of times I, I do self-reflect. I'm like, what's my motivation for being here? And I think it makes me a better hunter to be honest with you.
2: Well, it's certainly going to make you enjoy your time there um, a lot more, and I'm Um Wild Sheep, uh, British Columbia, just asked me to come up and be the keynote speaker at their banquet, and I wasn't able to make it work um, schedule-wise, but uh, the young lady that we were talking to said, is, is that your guys' banquet?
1: Uh, it is, but I don't think it was us. I, was it maybe the Alberta chapter? Was maybe,
2: it, it might have been uh, Alberta. Uh,
1: uh, it might have been Alberta, right. sort of, but anyway, it could um, have been. I'm...
2: They wanted me to come and speak about the um, slowing, slowing time down when we hunt, and really reflecting on little details. And I think that's if you're hunting with a slightly different purpose, or even the same purpose, but you're willing to slow it down and you're willing to um, appreciate that the closer you become to something, the more interesting it becomes. I think you're really going to get a lot more out of the hunt than you would otherwise. For instance, let's say you kill a big doll sheep and the sun is setting and, um, you have a long trek back to camp and you're like, Hey, we got to get this animal scun out. We got to get broken down. We got to get, take a couple of photos. You know, we got to get them in our packs. We got to death march this thing back to the mountain or back to our camp. Well, if you were to just slow that down and say, look, who cares when we get back to camp or let's just sleep here. Let's say you have your safety gear and you're like, let's just sleep at the ram. Let's start a little willow fire if we can. Even if we can't, let's just get into our safety blankets. Screw it. Let's gut him. Let's just sleep right here with the ram, or let's break him down. Let's totally take two hours right now or an hour, totally skin him out and get his get his cape and his is uh, horns setting there, and then you know get his flesh cooling, and let's just sleep right here and watch the sun go down. And eat your granola bar, even if you're going to be a little bit cold, a little bit hungry. Eat your granola bar and then get up early and watch the sun come up. And then spend some more time at the Ram and with your buddy, or if you're solo, just with Mother Nature. And you slow that whole process down and then you just lollygag your way back to camp the next morning. I'll bet you, even though you're going to be cold, maybe a little bit scared, and certainly hungry, I'll guarantee you that second story. Is times ten the first, and I've done them both. And all I do when I tell the first story is I complain. <laughs> I complain about hard, not complain, <laughs> but I—it's a complaint because I'm like, we pushed so hard, our toenails fell off, or we pushed so hard. I pushed really hard one night uh, with a dear friend of mine named Frank Harrison, Alaska in the Chugach. He and I had to cross this. You guys both know what I'm talking about. It's a little stream. Probably just a little bit too wide for a man to step across, probably only two feet deep, two and a half feet deep, but going so fast, you don't dare wait it, or, you know, you have to try something clever to get across. And so Frank and I had crossed this stream one night hustling back to camp, got to get back to camp, got to get back to our sleep mags. And we hustled, hustled, hustled. I mean, we burned our calories down. We crossed this stream and it started pouring. You know, one of those mountain showers that's like, I mean, pouring. And we look over with our headlamps. We turn our head look over and we can see our tent guy wires are reflecting. We're 75, 100 yards from the tent. And we're sitting there looking at our tent. It's probably 2.30 in the morning. And it starts pouring in. I kid you not, all of a sudden, I opened my eyes, and it's probably 8.30 in the morning. He and I fell asleep in the pouring rain, not wearing rain gear, with a sheep on our back, literally sitting with our backpacks. We never even took our backpacks off. We we're sitting with our backpacks on, holding us straight up, sound asleep in the pouring rain. We woke up, that's how tired we were. We fell asleep 75 yards from the tent. But I'll guarantee you where he killed his ramp was really, uh, really, really sketchy. So our goal was to try to get to the where we felt safe before sundown. And we did. But then it was from there to the tent was a very, very long distance. Whereas I argue if we would have just stayed on that clifftop face, man, what a night we would have had. And we were right next to a big blueberry patch. We would have eaten blueberries and done jumping jacks and pushups and argued and told and jokes. You know every and it would have been awesome both both were awesome but you get one of the
1: things well you know that's the one thing you know we have limited time as you know um with the day job and my hunting partner he is always the guy we kill something and he wants to fly out the next day like hustling back to camp and i'm like for years i've been like kind of trying to say like no no we got to sit and savor this man and we got to eat this doll sheep meat or the, the whatever meat by the lake and enjoy it and live the life. And it's like, my goodness, and I'm with you, man. We we have to slow down and enjoy it and the reverence of where we're at and what we're doing. And, and like to like some of my most amazing memories with doll sheep or sheep hunting wasn't pulling the trigger. It was eating, sitting on the side of the mountain and like taking it in. You got the horns there. And the rom- uh, romanticism of having sheep meat by the fire, it, that, that that's a, the experience for me.
2: Yeah, same. I think pulling the trigger is, um, and it's not just cliche, but I think that's the least interesting part. I mean, being a really good marksman is interesting. Putting the animal down super quick is interesting. Knowing your rifle inside and out is very interesting. Um, but skinning the animal, feeling the cold of its meat and drying its meat, and then getting that awesome crust that you get on the meat after that for 24 hours and then flushing the hide to where you get, you know, hopefully it's a chilly enough morning. I like it when it's a chilly enough morning to where that fat starts to just almost kind of break off, you know, like you're getting that last quarter inch of flesh off and the fat's just breaking off and just slowing that stuff down. I, I hunted a few years ago with Tavis Mulder. Do you guys know Tavis from Arctic Red?
0: Worked for him this um, year, Donnie.
2: <laughs> oh, you did? <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Yeah, you he, bet. In my opinion... In my opinion, he's an awesome guy. Um, he loves the sheep. I love his uh, philosophies. He makes guys work for their rams, and I've hunted rams twice with Tavis, and I've not killed a ram yet. And I left happy as a clam. I passed one ram with a bow. Uh, he just wasn't the animal that I was looking for, and I wasn't I'm not a trophy hunter, although I am. But I wanted the ram that I passed was a eight year old. 36 inch classic looking doll sheet, but I wanted one that was broomed or 12 years old or whatever. I don't care what he's going to score, but I want something older and gnarly. And um, so I passed that Ram, but I, I just love Tavis. I think he's a fantastic pilot. Uh, I think he's got a wonderful family. I think he runs one of the best outfits in, in Canada. And, and um, I flew with his secondary pilot. Is his name Mark, Peter?
0: Yeah, you bet. Did you know Mark.
2: Mark. I flew with Mark, and we were flying out one time, and um, I had a headset on. I was in his cub, and he said, can I ask you a question? I said, sure. He goes, how – he goes, of the clients we've had, you're the only guy – I think he said you're the only guy or you're one of the few guys that even if you kill your doll sheep on the first day, you want to stay the rest of the 10 days or the rest of the 13 days or whatever. He said, why is that – i said man i'm here to be in the mountains i'm here to fly fish i'm here to hunt sheep i'm here to hunt and i was with a good friend of peter's and mine ben storak and so i'm i'm here to have dinner with ben and have cowboy coffee with ben and laugh with ben and get dehydrated with ben and get hungry with ben and crash horses and uh, all we're just here to do things that make us feel alive and and uh and, and maybe even at times, I forgot I was even sheep hunting, which is maybe why we didn't get a ram a couple of times. But we were working hard and just looking for the right ram, you know what I mean? And and uh, and March said that to me. He's like, how come everyone always wants to fly home as soon as they get their animal? And it's like, it's as though they're just here for that animal and then they need to check that box. But for me, nothing could be further from the truth. And I, I just want to savor that. I just want to savor that experience as much as possible. In fact, the more money that I make let's just say let's just say my money my income is trending up which we all hope it is but let's just say all of us as my money trends up my free time also tends to grow along with my bank account and that's the only reason I want to grow my bank account the only reason not ever to buy a Ferrari everything that I want to do is I want to hunt for longer in fewer places I don't want to go fly fishing in 10 places, I want to go fly fishing in five places and I want to stay 10 times long. That's what I want to do. I want to eat coconut with the locals. I want to go check out beaches that haven't been fished in a long time because nobody has time to, to do that. You know, And one time I was hunting with, um, again, our good friend, Ben Storak, and we've had fantastic hunts. We are having an awesome hunt for this big lion in his area at Arcadia Outfitters in, in the Fraser River Valley. And um, we were after this big lion, it was so physical and Ben's like he was paying accolades to me, he was being so nice, he's like, man, He's like, I don't know anyone else that I could do this with right now with you. He's like, You are just eating up this and we're postponing. You guys know how hard that is, like going mid side in the snow after this big lion and, and awesome experience. But when we when we killed that lion, Ben and I had sat down and um and we had just talked about you know, talking about life and talking about slowing things down and and uh, we had this lion dead on the ground and and i didn't i was i said i don't know what to do now ben like he doesn't have horns for us to admire he doesn't have a giant set of animals for us to admire and we're looking at his beautiful beautiful animal and we're going to eat them and mountain lion is absolutely fantastic but you know and we had sam solholt with us do you guys know who sam solholt is just harder for all of South Dakota. are yeah Wickedly soulful young man, really talented photographer. Uh, he was with us shooting that hunt, and he said, uh, "He said Donnie, you know the old timers carried him out." And I looked over at Sam I said, "Are you kidding me?" And he said, "No." They, he said, "Even there was this older woman. I think he was saying in Northern California that used to be a lion hunter back in early 1900s." And he's like, "There's, you know, she tells stories of carrying her lions out." So that gave us this perspective spending more time with this animal and more more, uh, more discomfort of kind of kinda like earning this keep and spending more time with this lion. And so you see these, they came out really fancy, but there's these ridiculous photos of me carrying this lion. And, and, uh, and some people really love him, some people really hate him, but that's why we did that. And when I was telling Ben, like, this is so cool that we were able to slow this process down. And when Ben and I were talking about that, he told me about a hunter that he had that had booked a California bighorn hunt for an obscene amount of money because that's how it, this has gone. And he said he started hunting with the gentleman, I think, on Friday. And he said he kept noticing the guy kept looking at his watch. And finally, Ben said, hey, man, I'm like, why are you looking at your watch? And he said, well, I have, a, I have a flight Monday morning at 8 a.m. to get out of here. And Ben's like, you're I forget what they are, 10 or 14 days, right, Peter? 10 days or something like that. And um, and and Ben's like, you have a ten day hunt. And he's like, yeah, but I got I got to be on that flight on Monday morning. Like, we got to kill that ram today, or at the very latest tomorrow morning, so I can be on my flight, so I can get out of here. And Ben told me that story, when we were talking over this line. And I just thought, no way, man, no way. Like I'm the guy that you have to police escort out of your lodge because I'm staying into the next group. <laughs>
0: Yeah, no, I had that I same experience believe. this year up at Arctic Red, Donnie, where I had a, uh, it's funny because I was just listening to you talk for the last little bit here and, and going through kind of sharing where you're at and, and your ethos around it all. And I got like quite the, quite the variety this year, having, not, didn't do a full season up there, but, but had six weeks in and, and got to see the good and the bad of everything. And um, my most successful hunt and my least favorite hunt were the same hunt, right? Because we killed on day one and the, and the hunter just wanted to go home. And it was like, okay, well, and that was it. we did that, you know. Caribou and moose were down by noon, and then I had a lot of work to do. But he just wanted to go home, and I, and for me, I'm like you. I'm like just, I want to be out there as much as I can. So, um, had to work through that in my own, you know, just to myself. And that was it. He went his way, and I went mine. And I, I feel that, you know, he probably missed out on some things. And uh, did you try? Yeah, to talk I just like that. Your it? that's your ethos. And pardon? Did you try to talk him out of it? Absolutely. Tried to talk him out. you know, there's other options there, right? There's always a chance of a wolverine or a wolf or just, you know, things that you'll never see, right? Moose ruts going on, caribou ruts going on. There's all kinds of great things you could you could experience in, in a truly wild place. And But he was just excited to get back home and that was it.
2: Nope. Never. <laughs> 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 Not a chance. I would have I uh, said let's go find the, the most insanely stupid bull moose and let's go sit on that joker and watch him for 10 days and watch him just absolutely bulldoze this valley.
1: You betcha. So I I think, Donnie, when you were up in BC on one of your lion hunts, I don't know if it was the one where you are talking about where – and that by far, that is one of my favorite photos that you have of you coming out of the bush with that lion and that snow coming off you. Like that's just – that's true, Donnie Vincent, in my opinion, when I see that and one of my favorite, you know – photos of you know an individual with their their quarry so cool but uh, but with that um, you know you were on that uh, hunt with with Ben and then you guys came over to the Fraser River project that we were doing to capture on Peter was there I, I didn't have the opportunity to make it um, can, and we actually have a film it's called Transmission the Wild Sheep Society BC was filming at the time and you were in, you're in the film and you're featured in there and you're kind of emotional, I guess you could call it that on uh, in one of the um, the scenes there. Can you talk a little bit about that experience and and um, sort of your thoughts on that and what that was like being there?
2: Yeah, that was wicked. Um, that was the very best secondary prize to being there on a lion hunt. In fact, that just became our hunt. You know, we um I went up there and booked a lion hunt with Ben. You know, and, and when I hunt with Ben, when I hunt with anyone, I you know, I pay full price just like every hunter. I don't want anyone to think that I was there on charity. Like Ben has a business to run and and I'm a client just like anyone else and I paid Ben full price and we you know, we went out the first day and, and started looking for lions. Then Ben had told me I think that either the night before we started lion hunting or the first night of lion hunting, he said, Hey, there's this project down valley uh, for the wild sheep here, and for uh, the spread of Movi from domestic rams to to wild sheep, and and uh, if we had time, you know, I'd love to go down there and kind of poke my head in and see how is it going, and maybe help them for a day. And I said, "Man, like that's what we're doing. I mean, we'll look for lions when we have time, but that is what we're doing." And so we went the very next morning, and and uh, and then every morning after that, we had uh, we had shown up for that. And I think, um, I brought a photographer with me that I think must've had maybe COVID. I think he was so, he was so hurting. Oh, I thought he was going to die. I thought he was going to die. I, at night I was kneeling next to his bed, kind of giving him one of these, like, Hey, is your chest still rising and falling? And, and, um, and so I just said, Hey, you stay in bed, you recover. Ben's beautiful wife, Rosie, was checking on him, getting him medicine and, and fluids, and uh, we went and worked on that project, and you know, that's, being there over those days and working with, and you'll have to forgive me for the names, but um, was it Helen, the young lady that was running yeah. the whole project? Okay, and then the, and then um, Chris, was he one of the rocket netters in, in the, with with the pilot, going and actually getting the sheet? Yeah, Chris, Chris Proctor's the, the regional people? bio regional bio and and just being around with all of those students and the, the Native core group, uh, it, was, it was enchanted. It was uh, once in a lifetime. I was really regrettable about COVID because I wanted to come back and work on the project a few weeks later. But in that short amount of time, Canada had shut down uh, international travel, I believe, to Americans. And so I couldn't come back. But um, it's just once in a lifetime opportunity to see, these animals that really were enamored with. That's the part that I don't understand when people leave hunts so fast. These animals were enamored with. That's why pulling the trigger to me is it's the least important piece. It's the most important piece and the least important piece. And so seeing these rams come in, seeing these youths come in and, and uh, be sedated and have their, their faces covered up with a, with a blindfold so that they can calm down and, you know, and then we draw, we draw a sample, we take a nasal swab and, um, and, and curate the sample and then see if we get a, a plus or a negative. And then you have this sheep, this or this ram who's shackled and we wait, um, Peter was at 45 minutes, something like that for us. Yeah, it was about 45 that result. first year. 45. And then we find out if she's, he or she's positive. They get a bolt gun to the uh, back of the head and, um. And they lose their life because of the transmission of this uh, domestic sheep uh, disease, and and uh, it's just it's tough to see. You know, you don't want to see any animal go through this. You don't want to see any person go through this. But when you're when you're seeing this kind of um, yin and yang that happens between people and domestic livestock and wild sheep, and even just the natural progression of us as human beings across the globe, everything we do, everything we touch, we try to break and uh, and molest and And, um, I actually, when I was working on that with, with you guys, it just was so impactful for me. I mean, I would go and do that stuff. I wanted to be there as much as I could. I wanted to see the texture of everyone's face as they were working. I wanted to see the seriousness, uh, you know, the helicopter pilots risking everything to fly that bird that way in that manner. That's not why helicopters are designed or how they're designed. that's exactly, he's asking helicopters to do things that they're not really designed to do which is fantastic to see and and then to to rock at these animals while they're trying to use their territories to evade and then bring them back to a group just really uh, intrinsically rewarding even the, you know i held a couple of these fetuses that uh were aborted by the by us killing and euthanizing their mother we cut these fetuses out and i was able to hold this fetus and you think just the cycle of life and and the circle of of life for these animals, whether it be predator or prey, whether it be an avalanche, whether it be falling into the Fraser River, uh, whether it be dealing with eagles or coyotes or wolves or cougars or, or uh, hunters. Um, it's just interesting to see this whole pinnacle of of death and, and life and this foray of existence all kind of culminate in that one afternoon or the, that one week, I should say. I totally forgot about lion hunting. I mean, I think we went on a couple of Snowbile, snowmobile rides, snow machine rides later on that week, and half, half looked for a cat track. But really, both Ben and I just, we couldn't wait to get back and, and see the sheep and work on the sheep. And really, for me, it was both the sheep and the people. I loved seeing the students and I loved seeing Helen. She's, I mean, you want to talk about a brass tacks woman, like, holy a man alive that she has, she has made all of her own decisions and has kept her compass pointed in the right direction from it 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 seems like about birth that woman has been in control of things and <laughs> and uh it was re- just really rewarding you know and it's um Leonardo or Leo uh uh Aldo Leopold he said he had this quote where he said he talks about wilderness and i loved it because he said um people in general particularly, I think he was slashing economists said that really wilderness only holds value to these people. Once we're able to molest it, once we're able to manipulate it, once we're able to own it, once we're able to package it up and resell it. Wilderness is only holds value there into which his argument was, well, it's funny because now it's no longer wilderness. And so I thought about that while we were there. I even think about that when we're there hunting because of how we hunt now, right? We, we don't hunt for food anymore. We do, but we don't, right? We, we, all of us can get away with going to the grocery store. They even have, they even have cheeseburgers not made out of fricking soy. So like you can, you can get by, we can get sustenance, right? Without killing animals. But, um, it's still this re- remembrance of what we were as an original people. It's before the advent of agriculture, we were societies of hunters and gatherers. If that were, to, if that would have pro- perpetuated the way it was, if that, if we would have stayed in line with those, with that living style, that societal style of human beings, then hunting and gathering would be a great impact on us as a tribesman or a tribeswoman and how we kind of lived our lives and raised our babies and how many babies we raised. And and so when when we are sheep hunting. And being stewards of the land, much like we are with this Movi project, we're igniting those pieces of our DNA that bring us back to being hunters and gatherers. That's why it's so important to us and so misunderstood to people that don't really understand hunting or or understand the achievement of putting ourselves in uncomfortable places to do things that when we hold on to a piece of fur or we're skinning, the cape off an animal or the hide off an animal. And we're feeling the horns and we see the life leave the eyes of an animal. These are things that ignite us as a people, as to who we are. And in the beginning, when I was younger, when I would just hunt for any, like I tell one of my buddies, like, I'm going to Alaska. I have a bear tag. I have a seven M.M. You know, my whole goal on this trip is to kill a bear with one shot. I remember having this conversation with a buddy of mine. I want to, I want to kill a bear. I want to find the right bear. I want to kill him with one shot and I'm going to skin him out. And I'm just, it's dangerous where I'm going. And I I kind of was setting this stage up as a man versus wild. And then I've told this story probably a thousand times when the first bear walked past me and I got really close to him, maybe 10, 20 yards. I saw his eyes, how a bear kind of looks at you. And I saw his paws on the rocks. And the kelp. I saw his nostrils moving, and I saw his teeth. And he's pulling it. He's pulling skin off a of pink salmon. And I didn't want to kill a bear then. Now that I was this close to him, I didn't. I didn't want to kill that bear anymore. I just wanted to be there with him in his ecosystem. And then I started to realize why we have ducks unlimited, why we have wild sheep society, why we have um, pheasants forever, why we do all of these habitat projects, why we an uh, Initially, I thought, so we have more game, and so we have more pheasants to go and hunt and shoot, more ducks to hunt and shoot, more sloughs to hunt, more spots to hunt. That's really not it. The projects really ignite the same beacon or the same flame as the hunt, because as original societal hunters and gatherers, that's what's important to us, is the habitat that allows us to live in those societies. That allows us to have a bounty of animal and berries to live in those societies. So doing these projects and hunting, it's the same thing, whether you're the regional biologist like Chris or, um, the veterinarian like Helen or a sheep hunter that hires Ben or, or, um, or the helicopter pilot, we're all doing these things because it ignites that little piece of our DNA that reminds us of who we were as a species and now we've evolved into this I don't know I don't know what we are like, I don't know what New York City is I don't know what LA is like I see these things and I meet people there and I just think you know they think I'm a barbarian and I'm I'm currently skinning a beaver uh probably naked bathing myself in Chesapeake Bay and I think they're so far removed from reality that when a war does walk onto the shores of this country and I'm including Canada in that, when a war does come to our shores, when all these comforts go away in a flash, and I'm sorry I'm being so long-winded, but when you go to flick a light switch and the electricity doesn't come on, and you open up that fridge and the food inside is warm, and you turn that faucet and water doesn't come out at the end, you are going to realize that you have been living a shell, and you are now a prey item. At the very least, you are going to be very short-lived. Most of us will be anyway, but that's where I really think projects like that movie piece come along. That's where I think we really celebrate wild places. And and that's what I think it's why we're so important to, to be a hunter and gatherer and a fisherman.
1: So, um, it weren't long winded at all, or if you were, it was every second was interesting. Um, But on that same note, like Donnie, as you're telling this story, I'm thinking, you know, uh, hunter gather, it's in our DNA. Like you said, it's who we are. It's our existence but we know with evolution and change, things change. And so it's, you know, this whole concept of eating out of a box or, you know, going to a supermarket, this is relatively new. Like really it's, you know, okay, a hundred years ago, most of us did that yeah there were cities and people maybe weren't going out and killing but they were killing chickens in town and you know just people were very connected with with their food and where it came from and certainly 200 years ago that's a fact for Mm -hmm. sure but Mm -hmm. you know we don't have to go very far back so where do we look like 30 40 50 years because evolutionary we're we're losing that like it you know and of course in the evolutionary perspective it takes centuries for that to change but what do we look as humans down the road? What does it look like 30 years from now? You know, we talk about the pendulum that goes one way and swings back the other way, but does it cuz we truly this urban dynamic is completely disconnected with where food and and any of their food comes from.
2: Well, I think the pendulum swing, this is my opinion, I think the pendulum swing that we're going to see is um, have you ever seen this is so ridiculous but have you ever seen the movie? Uh, I don't know even know who did it, but the movie WALL-E. Have you ever seen that about the little robot that's on Earth and Earth is being reclaimed? Have you ever seen that? And all the humans go up yeah. and live on a spaceship, and they all ride around on these electric carts. And they all have a screen that's mounted right in front of them that brings them all their entertainment, TV shows and movies. And then they just order their food and the food just comes out of this machine and they eat the food and they all become big fat slobs and they can't even really walk under their own weight. They can't even really move. Um, I think that's probably what we are trending towards is to have that, those societal infrastructures to where people are eating. You know, I think we're very quickly going to be moving to where we're eating, you know, just processed corn, just processed soybeans. They're, you know, whatever wildlife we have is going to be in parks that might as well be glorified zoos picture picture central park in new york city you know pull the pull the thugs out and pull the riffraff out and people can walk through there and look for a white-tailed deer or a gray squirrel or a raccoon if they're lucky enough and that's what i think we're going to trend towards and i think we're going to be continue to be so unhealthy excuse me that you know our and we're reading about it now. And I hate to even admit that I'm even on social media, but you're hearing now about the decreased sperm count that we have as men with our cell phones and with all of the things that are being brought to our fingertips. And, and, you know, it wasn't until, um, what was it the 1950s that really plastic started entering into the food container system. And so you have all these things that are impregnating our food with, with, um, carcinogens and, and hormones and, byproduct that are are really poisoning us as a people. And so I think we're going to trend that way. People really love their lives. They really love their um, Tesla cars. They really love their smartphones. They really love ordering something on um, Amazon. I did it this morning. I ordered a book this morning on Amazon and I laughed at myself how stupid it was. I hit two buttons and the stupid buck, it's on its way to me. And so we we go through all of these things and we're going to our pendulum is going to keep swinging that way to where the we're going to be separated as a people to where the people that still have some sort of original idea of what we were are just going to be left in the dust because of the technology, the things that like Elon Musk is coming up with, like with the brain link and all of this stuff, all that is going to lead towards, this is my opinion, not sci-fi, is all going to lead towards a form of artificial intelligence. This is my opinion. Not that we're going to have be cyborgs. We're going to have, we're going to look like Arnold Schwarzenegger's Terminator. But we are going to be so computerized, our cars, our homes, our cell phones, that everything is going to be man and machine. Working out is probably. Do you remember those stupid things you guys would see on TV where the, you hook the electrodes up to your abs and it would flex your abs while you're watching TV to give you a six-pack?
0: Hey, that stuff works, Donny.
2: <laughs> yeah it's called a sheep hunt that's um, right (laughs) I think that stuff is coming I think that's the trend where people are going but the pendulum swing that you're not that you're struggling to realize it's not that we're going back to the Paul Revere days where you know we're slaughtering chickens in our cities and now we're still selling meat from a butcher store it's not that it's mass extinction in my opinion it's the total loss of the human race it's uh it's an event that we are not planned for it's not stupid covid it's not some manufactured mini tiny little baby bug that they you know took out of a, a, a pharmacy or a, a laboratory in, in china to release as a little human study not that it's something major it's something that is going to spread amongst the human population it's an ice age it's a weather event it's something that is going to have it's maybe an maybe an asteroid. It's going to be catastrophic. Like when you look at the timeline of events, and you look at how long T Rex was here, and he's now long gone, and he was here a long time. You look at how long the Cretaceous period, the Jurassic period, the Devonian period. You look at these periods of uh, megalofauna that existed on the Earth, and these these time periods. We're massive. And then you look at the human human, you know, humans are. Look at that That's how long we've been. You know, this is this is This is how long T-Rex. That's how long we've been. And look at what we're already doing to our not to the planet. I'm not talking about global climate change. I'm talking about look at what we're doing to ourselves. Right? T-Rex died as a badass lived as a badass. He had a tiny little brain, but it'd rip you to shreds, run 30 miles an hour. It's a pretty amazing animal. We, outside of some fantastic, worldly, unworldly athletes, and Navy SEALs, and Green Berets, and Delta Force guys, and Canadian Special Forces, and British Special Forces, outside of those cats, we are not an impressive group. And we're, I think we're going yeah. to keep trending that way. And who knows what's going to happen, of course. Maybe technology just continues um, you know, Joe Rogan uh, is often quoted saying this is the, it's the best time to live it right now. Like right now is the best time to be alive. Best health Best food. And I know what he's saying. He's saying right now is the most comfortable time to be alive. Right now is the safest time to be alive. And I I had this epiphany a, a year ago and it, it made me sit up in bed at night and it's so dumb because I'll guarantee you it's been written on a thousand books. But to me, this is a novel idea. And that was that we're not living longer. We're dying slower. That's all we've managed to do is prolong our hearts beating and our lungs filling and flapping with air. And we have little electric carts that allow us to get around. And we have systems in place where people will bring food to our houses when we become elderly. And they have we have meds that will... Get rid of your diarrhea. We have meds that will give you diarrhea. We have meds that will bring your heart rate up. We have meds that will bring your heart rate down. We have all of these things to kind of box off death, but there's very little life that lives in that path. And it's just boxing off death. These are things that we see in mother nature and we go, Oh my God, that rabbit got just, oh, it's terrible. And, and, and then you see a human being, right, That you know, some guy's got, to, one of us has got to swim across this river to go see if there's fruit on that island. And yes, the river's full of crocodiles, but one of us, one of us three, someone's got to, okay, I'll swim, you two create a diversion. I'll swim. If I make it, I'm gonna start, we're gonna do some sort of vine rope and I'm gonna start sending fruit back to you guys. We're gonna figure out a system here to get some more food, but one of us got to swim across this river. Or maybe it ends up being two of us, and I get eaten while Peter makes it. But these are the things that keep us alive. That is living for us. The, you know, tricking ourselves on a kit ten, and they aren't. That's that's the way. That's why I. Get it. I want to see that painting. I want to exist. I want to pretend that I wasn't able to fly to Canada. I want to pretend that I had to ride a horse to some train station. And I had to take some train for two weeks to British Columbia to where I had to meet up with a guy that I don't even know how in the hell I found out who this guy was and he's going to go get our flour and our sugar and we're going to put it on a pack train and we're going to ride for two weeks. I want to travel for 60 days before I even get into sheep country. And then I want to, when I'm into sheep country, I want to be there all of August and all of September until the snow chases of the mountains, and I'm, I'm able to go home and write a book about this grand adventure. That is living. And I'm not just saying it's through hunting. It could be through racing a car. It could be through, excuse me, being a, a Navy SEAL or a Green Beret, however it is. Like, there's all of these different categories where you can chase real existence, real pressure, real discomfort, real fear. And you can channel these things, and, and you're really filling your life with a collection of stories trending towards the end. But when we're blocking off all these death events with medication, with all this help, with all these different things that happen yes, we're living to we're 90 or 95 or whatever, but w- what was life like after 60? W- what was your yeah. quality of what life, was, you know? And they're, they're you know, and, yeah.
0: What was the purpose of your existence for those last 30 years? Was it just to be a pawn in the in the game and just to have money coming in out of your bank account? Or mm-hmm. was it for you to actually do something real? Great words, Donnie. And
2: I hear people say, um, oh, I'm so heartbroken. My grandmother died. I said, oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. How old is she? She was 95. Oh, and and then they, you know, somebody would say, uh, she died of COVID. And I say, no, she died because she ran out of time. That's how long we live. You know, that's that's what being a human being is. Or, oh, she died of a heart attack. or She died of a stroke. He's like, no, she died of a total system failure because she lived, hopefully, an amazing 95 years. And that's the trick is really um i love that saying every man and of course i mean women as well but every man lives two lives the first is the life he's living the second is when he realizes he only had one life and that's really you can't live life like you're dying you cannot if we did neither one of none of us would be on a podcast right now this is not the last thing we would want to do but you can fill your life with as many stories as possible and and even in that did you guys read that book project that I worked on with Michael Easter, The Comfort Crisis. If you didn't, I no, think you guys really. would enjoy that book, The Comfort Crisis, written by Michael Easter. But he talks about in this book, it's, okay. it's literally about um, I took him to uh, I took him to Alaska for thirty days. This is a gentleman. He wrote a Men's Health magazine did a story on me in twenty eighteen and he was the author of that men's health magazine story. And then after that story he was so intrigued with this idea and a few other ideas with living a difficult life that he went out and wrote this book called The Comfort Crisis. He did a beautiful job. um, But when I was with him and then also reading the book, I learned as much from him as he learned from me because he would ask me, hey, why do you go sheep hunting? And I would tell him, and he'd say, hey, do you want to know why the science says you go sheep hunting? And i yeah, I want to know. And basically he pointed out that the more difficult something was The more afraid you were, the more cold you were, the more calorie deficient you were, the more dehydrated you were, the more euphoria you felt, and the more alive you felt, and not only felt, but the more alive your body became, healthier, more vibrant, more brain function. Literally, you started to become, by pushing your body down, you started to become the best human being you could. And um, so I learned a lot from him, but one of the things that he had in his book is that we have to learn to embrace boredom. Instead of throwing your headset on, instead of throwing earbuds in and listening to a book or listening to a song or watching a movie, embrace the quiet, stare outside or stare at a wall or whatever it is, like embrace that nothingness for a while and then that makes everything else kind of come to life. It's just like being on a really long hunt when you come home, you take a bite of pizza, you're like, oh, is this what pizza's been tasting like the whole time I've been gone? You know it just kind of blows you away or you drive a car <laughs> yeah. with a radio have you guys ever done that um like i would go do projects in the in alaska for the u.s fish and wildlife service and i'd live in a tent for like six months and then after that six months i'd get in a u.s fish and wildlife truck and turn the key and turn the radio on and you know led zeppelin would come on and i'm like do people know about this i mean this is and <laughs> and you know when you go from hiking everywhere and then driving a boat around log jams and sweepers and strainers and now now you get to just put a blinker on and turn on to evergreen street you know i'm thinking oh, are other people doing this you know this is incredible and so that's i think that's kind of the conundrum that we come from is when we were you know and i'll guarantee you the three of us would have been right there you know when we're hunters and gatherers and then some guys like hey if we put this seed in the ground freaking corn cob pops up over here and it's gonna pop up every year we're like That's pretty friggin' amazing. And then it perpetuates into what (laughs) it is today, right? And so um, I'll guarantee you everybody was on board in the beginning. Why wouldn't you be? You just came up with something that was, you know, and we probably did some levels of cultivation. I should be a better historian, but we probably cultivated other things before, blueberries or raspberries or whatever it is. We probably did some of these things, or we knew... The animals were that, that, that kind of planted these things. So, you know, let's say blue jays are responsible for planting blueberries. We'd probably really keep an eye on what the blue jays were doing to see where the next blueberry patch is going to be arising. So, there's all sorts of yings and yangs. There's no, no right way. There's no anti hunters aren't bad. Hunters aren't bad. People that don't understand hunting aren't bad. Shutting down all of hunting isn't bad. Opening up all of hunting to everything in the world isn't bad. Like, we have to look at nothing is bad, we have to just look at these our elements of, of of interest we need to talk about these things, we need to be more cognizant, we need to understand our wildlife and our wild places and who we are as human beings God, I couldn't imagine not being a hunter or fisherman I can't even fathom when I'm driving south even when I see someone you know, if you see somebody September 15th and they're, you know, at a football game. And, you, you know, somehow you see this in your, and you guys are sheep hunting, and this gentleman or young ladies at a football game. I, I just can't even fathom wasting September 15th on a football game and not being outside. And, you know, but we're all different. We're all very, very different. And, and um, that's what I mean. It's everything is, everyone wants to paint everything as black and white right now. And nothing, nothing is black and white. Everything, everything is in between. Hunting, not hunting. It, it's just everything has to be um, looked at and thought about critically and and enjoyed and um, you know systematically.
1: Wow, I uh, I love it. That's uh, that's some pretty deep stuff. The uh, the future of our world and what it looks like uh, according to Donnie Vincent yep. and and deep stuff and really important stuff and critical stuff that we you know we need to do a better job of thinking about and and uh that's you know with your platform i love how you articulate that and and share that message donnie so um i know we've taken a bunch of your time and you're jumping on an airplane tomorrow and you've been home for a sh- few short days but before we let you go can you just kind of give us a rundown on what's uh what's coming out of your camp anything that you can share that's not uh, under wraps right now we'd love to hear about it
2: yeah you know we've been um we've been away from creating content for a little while now we continue to film every year. We're always, we're always getting content. We're always, you know, we post some stuff on social along those lines? But I think, um, we're trying to get back to where, um, client work, people that are hiring us that have companies outside of our own work is really what started to, um, take up our time. And, and, um, but this year I'm trying to, I would like to, don't quote me on this, but I would like to implement a mini series that we start to edit and put together to where we release a short film um, once a month. And uh, whether that be uh, four minutes, five minutes, six, seven minutes, but I want it to be uh, a piece of a, a longer section of film that we're going to put together, or a longer full feature film that we're going to put together. For instance, I've been on um, five doll sheep hunts that we have filmed and we haven't released content from any of them. And so I want to put together a uh, uh, film that is kind of a tribute to sheep and sheep hunters and sheep guides and sheep pilots. And I just kind of want to tell the story of what it's like going to the North Country to be around these animals um, to hunt them, to see them, the animals that, that share the wilderness with them. Think, ideas along those lines, but you know, take an hour-long film and then break it down into short segments and create those Um, and release them every month and I'm trying to work towards a system where we're making all of our films free we sell our films right now but I'm trying to get to where we're releasing all of our films free so I just want to I want to really increase our personal work and um, really start getting some of this imagery and storytelling out into the public Um, and not cut back on our commercial work but really start celebrating that stuff and then for me as a hunter there's just different things that I want to explore and do but I've been um, I'm going to go up to Alaska again this next fall and maybe hunt moose and caribou. and, and um, I've been doing a, quite a bit more water following. I grew up being a duck hunter, and I've been doing quite a bit more water following, which I've really been enjoying. But um, and I'm actually coming back up to Canada um, this um, May, I think, to do a black bear hunt with my um, recurve. I've been hunting with traditional archery for the last two years now, uh, basically full-time. I've done a couple of gun hunts. Um, and I've done one compound bow hunt, but I've been hunting. Do you guys know who Flip Pallet is? Look him up if you don't. He's a professional fly fisherman out of the Florida Keys. He's an amazing man. But he made a self-bow with clay haze out of Osage orange and um, and black tip reef shark skin. And he um, gifted that bow to me. He's killed over 100 deer with it. He gifted that bow to me uh, this last fall. So I've been hunting with that bow this last fall, and it's been just a tremendous uh experience and shooting a trad bow has uh literally become my favorite thing and and so i'm exploring the realms of taking that bow to alaska and doing a few different things i want to start putting together some trad films and so there's just lots of stuff that i have interest in and that is coming up and i just want to keep living uh living this life but i really want to start cranking out some more of our i mean i did an awesome sheep hunt in I did an awesome sheep hunt like 12 years ago where I arrowed actually that first ram you see on the mantle. In Toka, Alaska, I shot that guy uh, with a bow in just the nastiest blizzard. It's just an awesome ram. And he ended up getting eaten by grizzly bears and wolverines. I left him overnight um, because my arrow hit him a little bit like an inch. Basically, I hit him one long low liver. So I was, you know, a couple inches off of the gold zone. So I was like, we'll get him in the morning. It snowed overnight. It's been blizzarding the whole time. That's a whole other story. I didn't bring a jacket on that hunt. I brought. I didn't bring hardly any insulation. I, I, I brought the thinnest Sitka rain gear there is. Why we even lived, it should, we shouldn't have. Um, but in the morning when I was tracking him, I go in there, and there's fresh grizzly bear tracks and fresh, fresh wolverine tracks. Nobody has a gun. So we're going down this cliff in the fog and the snow, and I've got an arrow knock, like I'm going to defend the three of us against a grizzly bear and two wolverines with a single knock arrow and anyway we ended up finding him but like we filmed that whole thing and nobody's ever seen it and we filmed that That was the first thing we filmed as a crew at sick Manton. so we have all this work that i just really want to start getting out there and and um it's important to me and and uh yeah i just want to keep living my life and i'm so thankful for the gentlemen like you that take interest in our work and ask me to come and do podcasts like this and i'm so thankful for the companies that i work with and and the places that I get to go see, and for, you know, the guides and, and outfitters in Canada, which I just, I miss dearly. I'm not a vaccinated person, I think, for, I can actually say that now without a uh, fiery mob coming to my house, so I haven't been able to go to Canada, and um, I just really miss, you know, I miss the pilots. I'm just so thankful for the outfitters and the guides and stuff in Alaska and in, in Canada that, um, you know, that opening our world to to the places that that they call home and uh like ben storak and lone storak and tavis mulner and chris mckinnon and and all these guys and and uh yeah these men have just been um unbelievable in my life so i'm just thankful that i get to talk to gentlemen like you and and get to see the things that i get to do
1: I, uh, you know i have to say donnie we're just so grateful for for your platform and just uh you know we have our own platform uh one campfire you know where we're trying to tell the story about hunting and do a better job and and uh, we look at you and you're an inspiration for us, certainly. And uh, oh, we, we, we learn a lot from you and, and just uh, just keep keep doing what you're doing because uh, everything you say is so impactful. And, and it's certainly the sheep stuff, uh, you know, Pete and I are, are sheep guys. So we, uh, we're super keen to see what you put out there and, and looking forward to that coming out on your platforms. But uh, uh, thank you for taking your time today with us. And I want to wish you good luck on the East Coast on your hunt and look forward to more things out of you. And, hey, I don't know. I think it was Alberta that was talking to you about coming up there to do, be their guest speaker, but I think you should come to BC. So those Alberta guys are doing a great job, but <laughs> I think we need your BC here because uh, we got the Peter connection, we got the Ben connection. Um, so uh, and hey, there's more sheep and more hunting in BC than Alberta. So absolutely, yeah, I'm going to be a little selfish there on the Alberta boys. <laughs> great seeing to you to again, Donnie.
2: Oh, yeah, I'd, I'd love to come out. Thanks, boys. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me.
1: No, thank you, and good luck on your hunt, and we'll chat again soon.